Hey everyone, welcome to Fast Talk, your source for the science of endurance performance. I'm your host, Chris Case. While the Fast Talk podcast was originally geared towards cycling, many of the concepts we discuss can be applied across all endurance sports. After all, human physiology remains the same whether we're talking cycling, running, rowing, or cross-country skiing. Today, we're joined by someone who has a broad understanding of endurance sports, not only because he's studied human physiology in the lab for decades, but he's also worked with athletes across a broad range of athletic pursuits, and he's also participated in many of the sports he studies, from rowing to cycling. With the help of Dr. Steven Seiler, Today, we compare and contrast endurance sports as a whole, exploring everything from cardiovascular hemodynamics to muscle loading. We also discuss training impacts and implications across sports. How similar are they? How different are they? And does the polarized approach work for all of them and in the same way? While we had him, we also asked Dr. Seiler a few questions we often get asked by listeners about the polarized approach including what intensity four by eight minute intervals should be done at, and should we ever do sweet spot work? And just to be clear, when Dr. Seiler discusses quote, threshold sessions, he uses the research definition, which is actually sweet spot training. Cyclists tend to think of threshold sessions differently. We'll clarify all of this and much more on the show today. Adding to our conversation today, are Adam St. Pierre, the head coach of the Nordic ski team at Montana State University, Joe Gambles, a longtime professional triathlete and coach, and Glenn Swan, a former Masters National Cycling Champion and Coach Connor's mentor. To all the runners, rowers, skiers, and cyclists out there, let's make you fast. Hey, Fast Talk listeners, our big off-season sale ends in just a few days. You can join Fast Talk Labs for half price and get full access to all our sports science plus member pricing on all our solutions and services like inside testing, sports nutrition consults, and more. Join now during our special once-a-year offer to enjoy pathways, new workout ideas, expert sports nutrition strategies, new data analysis techniques, hundreds of the best guides and training science from world-class experts like Joe Friel, Dr. Steven Seiler, Sebastian Weber, Julie Young, Dr. Steven Chung, Julie Emmerman, and many Fast Talk guests. Dr. Steven Seiler, it's a pleasure to have you back on Fast Talk. Welcome. Well, thank you. It's good to be back. You know, I was feeling a little neglected and forgotten, to be <laughs> to be perfectly honest. Hey. I, I thought, hey, well, I've gotten old. I'm old news. They've moved on. Uh, we know you're a busy guy, but the invitation is always open for you to join us here. Um, and, and today, this is one that uh, offline we've talked about doing for quite some time because you aren't just someone who studies the sport of cycling. The the Fast Talk podcast began a bit cycling-heavy, cycling-centric, but a lot of the concepts we talk about are universally applicable to endurance sports generally, and I know you've studied a lot of the great Nordic skiers, runners, cyclists, rowers, and so we want to dive into endurance sports generally and talk about some of the training characteristics that are present in all endurance sports. Talk to that broader community. Yeah, maybe if you wouldn't mind, in a, in a nutshell, what is your vast experience when it comes to studying endurance sports? 
Oh, man. Yeah, I just love the comparative aspect of it. But I've worked with uh, speed skaters. I've worked with rowers. I've been a rower myself. I've been a cyclist myself. Work. I'm working with cyclists now. I've studied cross-country skiers and I've skied enough that I managed to do a, you know, a 50 kilometer skiing race. So I've kind of touched into a lot of different sports and I've always been fascinated with this kind of a comparative physiology approach. And, uh, and then at different times, different organizations have asked for various, you know, for help or connections. So, so I have dug into some of the issues on different sports and, and this was a, you know, it's really fun that to be able to do this with you guys to talk about some of these, uh, similarities and some differences. And there are more similarities than there are differences. I think that's important to say starting out is that, you know, it, fortunately the, the, the basics are the same. Yeah. I've really been looking forward to this because the, the comparison of the different sports is always very fascinating. Um, I really do want to talk more specifically about some of these other sports and, you know, the thing I actually wanted to start out with here with you is this definition, because getting ready for this episode, I went back through a whole bunch of studies that compared the different sports that talked about endurance sports in general with the, with the question in my head of, well, how do they define endurance sports? And, and what surprised me was I didn't find a single study that just defined what is an endurance sport. And I think that's an interesting question because, you know, endurance sport can be what Chris did which is go to Iceland and ride all of Iceland for 11 days. But if you look at um, energetics, it's actually surprising how quickly you go from relying mostly on anaerobic metabolism to relying on aerobic metabolism. So obviously a 100-meter sprint is pretty anaerobic, but 400 meters, 800 meters, are those endurance sports? What are they? I'm going to make this simple for you, Connor. I'm going to give you two variables that, that I think, you know, cause I thought about this and there's lots of ways you can spin it. But first of all, I would not say that the, if you're just touring around Iceland, I would not say that you're, it's a sport, but it's an endurance activity. Fair. Cause there's no winner or loser there. There's no finish line other than a finish, but not a who finishes first. So the first thing I would say in, in the endurance definition is that it's an endurance sport if it involves getting from A to B faster than some other individual or group or team. So there is, it is a transportation activity. Essentially, I couldn't think of an endurance sport that doesn't involve starting one place and transporting your body another place. Swift. Yeah, but you know, it's yeah, <laughs> yeah, know, but it's still true. You know what I mean? It's virtually yeah. you're still doing it. So yep. there's a distance that's being covered. That's that's the first thing. Because otherwise people could say, well, yeah, but soccer is an endurance sport. They're running. Well, no, it's not an endurance sport. It's a sport, it's a team sport that has an endurance component. You know, and and I want to distinguish between those where he, where we're going to define endurance. So we're saying that is the key component. That's the key differentiator. And then the other the other variable is is duration. And you were touching on it is where's the duration line go? And it's a bit fuzzy, but you start to transition to predominantly aerobic energy metabolism already at about three minutes. In fact, you could even say two, but I'm going to go three four and say 
anything from these 1500 meter events, 15, you know, three, four minute events and up, I'm going to say that what we see is the basic training, the basic training um, characteristics actually are much more similar than they are different. So transportation, you know, A to B and let's say three, four minutes plus in duration, and you see a lot more similarity than you see difference. I, I just want to clarify one thing about my Iceland trip. It, there was a competitive aspect because I did it with somebody else. And every day at the end of the day, we'd look at our garments and Matt would say, you know, how long did you ride today? And I'd say, <laughs> I rode this. And he'd say, oh, man. And then we'd ride around in circles in the wherever we were, campground or <laughs> seeing who, no could, way. Who, who could who could last the longest after a 12-hour day. We'd see who had but the weren't you longer. Weren't you riding together? Yes, I we were. I'm. I'm. Hopefully, Matt is listening, so, and I'm teasing so, him right now. So your G, you you had some differences in the GPS yes, exactly. data. <laughs> yes. yeah. and, so, and so he was he was correcting for the GPS error. Yes, yes. <laughs> their competition was who could eat more Snickers. Bars. Yeah, they were. They were Chris won uh, that one. There were many hidden competitions within that, but yeah, I, right. I well, well yeah, well, that that there's always hidden competitions. There's races within the race. So yes. just to qualify, but I'm trying to define this based on what the audience sees, not, yes. not on what the, what the audience is not allowed to see. Right. I know we're many weeks past the Olympics, but I record the Olympics and I'm still catching up on it. And quite interesting, this was not intentional. This morning, the, the session that I was watching, they had the 5K race, um, and then they showed the finish of the women's marathon, which is in, in kilometers, about 40 kilometers. Yeah, uh, 42. Yeah. What surprised me was, I mean, obviously the 5K was faster, but just watching it on TV, it looked about the same, even though there's a dramatic difference in, in the distance. Running style was very similar to me. They looked like they were going about the same pace. Like I said, I, I know they weren't. Well, I'll tell you, I can even help you because you're right. And, and the difference in velocity because we've studied it. I went into the IAAF data and found about uh, 40 women and 30 men. I can't remember exactly how many, but that, that were in the top 500 in the world and who had done the 5,000, the 10,000, the half marathon and the marathon in a single year, just to get this, get a picture. And it's the, the difference in pace between a 5,000 and a marathon on average was only 13%. Yep. So, you know, it is a very narrow band of velocity compared to power and cycling, uh, I would think. It's, it's, a, it's a narrower velocity band than it is a power band in cycling. And there's, there's reasons for that. But anyway, so yeah. So when you're looking at elite marathon running, they're technically not running very differently than they would be if they were running a 5,000. And in fact, you know, they it, at the world class level, they may put in surges that that are 10k speed. You know, so we've defined endurance sports as you are competing with somebody to be faster to get from a point A to a point B, and duration we're saying needs to be at least three minutes. Is there anything else that we would put in this definition? Not, not, not that comes to mind right now. And, and to be fair, you know, if you look at the Olympics, 
and you look at the endurance menu, they all, almost all of the events, save a couple, uh, are in the window of three minutes to two hours. So they're all in that, you might say, pretty high intensity band where you're at threshold or above. Uh, you know, the Olympic triathlon is being completed in under two hours. Mountain bike race is under two hours. The only the only one that doesn't fit in there is the road race and cycling, which can be a six hour event in the Olympics. But of course, it will be very stochastic, you know, in power output. So the point is, is the Olympic events that you're watching, they're not ultra events. They are uh, high intensity endurance events, essentially. Uh, and that's that's partly because of television. You know, that, that's people only watch we don't, for so long. Yeah, we don't have the we don't have the uh, short term attention span to deal with a six hour race usually although you know cycling is the one exception that i'm able to see in the in the olympic menu uh so so it definitely is in that classic range uh of endurance events four minutes to to two hours so i think we want to dive into the physiology now but you know there's kind of two big questions i feel we want to answer in this episode one is comparing the different sports and how similar or different their training is. But I also think it can be very interesting to talk about if you the, the difference between you have somebody, so, so we'll use cycling as an example, you have a track athlete who's doing a four or five minute event and you have a road racer who's doing a six hour event, how similar or different is their training as well? So, but let's dive into the physiology and, and, you threw a big term at us when I asked you what you'd like to talk about. So you said, let's discuss cardiovascular hemodynamics. Yeah, that's a good starting point. I mean, I, I would argue that the default position for the human is upright running. If we think of an evolutionarily um, this, this, uh, supported position, meaning that our adaptations over time have have been uh, optimized for that that transition to an you know an upright position and running. Um, so I think that's the default. And the reason I say that is because it once we understand that it helps to understand it tells us a little bit about some of the hemo, hemodynamics. Now you live in Colorado. I, I'm from Texas and Arkansas, but in that area, most places where the land is flat or fairly flat, you'll see water towers, right? You know what I'm talking about? The, the, and you can see them on the horizon in flat places and they've got the name of the, the football team or whatever, go wildcats. And so, and, and well, what's the purpose of the water tower? Well, the water tower elevates the, the town's water supply, creates a, uh, gravitational load so that you it pushes the water down and and that creates enough pressure to drive getting the water out to all the sinks and toilets in the in the town and and that that is analogous to the heart pumping water out right they're using a static pressure but we use a, the pressure of the heart but the other pump that we don't think about very much that's true both in town and in our bodies is you got to get that water back up to the, to the tower. You got to reload, you got to recharge the tower and that requires an actual pump. And in, in the human body, it is the muscle pump. 
the muscle pump facilitates, it really helps to bring back blood flow from the extremities. So when we're running, that every time the muscles contract, it helps to squeeze that blood, that venous blood, back up vertically towards the heart. It helps venous return. And so you could say that the, the running motion, the running contraction pattern, all of that is it all fits together in an optimized way for the cardiovascular system to, to function, just like that tower and the pump, you know, works for the water department in, in your hometown. Uh, and, and, and you need both because it's a, it's a closed system and they both are necessary. You need the pressure from the tower and you need the pump to bring back the water. So now when we get out of that position, then things change a little bit. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yep. So then a little, there's, so we can get into a little bit of it. I mean, it, but the, the, the basics are the same, but the subtleties change a little bit in terms of hemodynamics and it manifests itself in different ways that your body position, if you're on the bike and you sit up, your heart rate will tend to have a, a brief increase, right? And as you get down on the drops, your heart rate may actually go down if you're holding the same power. That's not because it's easier, but because there's a change in that relationship between uh, venous return, blood flow back to your heart, and stroke volume and heart rate. Adam St. Pierre is both an experienced exercise physiologist and Nordic ski coach. Let's hear what he has to say about the impact of the different endurance activities on hemodynamics. Like typically, you know, cross-country skiing engages more muscle mass uh, than, than, than cycling, right? Because we are using upper body. Uh, there's a lot of core engagement for propulsion in, in addition to the lower body movement. Um, so in many cases, like uh, an equivalent workload or, or an equivalent lactate production, we'll see a, uh, a higher heart rate in cross-country skiing compared to cycling. Um, again, because of that uh, increased muscle you know, recruitment, just uh, whole, whole body, as well as the, the posture, you know, the, the heart has to work a little harder to pump blood up to the brain um, in an upright posture compared to like swimming. Uh, or cycling where you're more of a, um, a horizontal posture. So, you know, th- there's some general rules of thumb you can utilize when trying to equate workload in one sport to workload in another. Um, and the, the rule of thumb, you know, we used to uh, estimate uh, at the Boulder Center for Sports Medicine was, you know, if you want an equivalent workload cross-country skiing to cycling, you, you probably add anywhere from five to 15 beats a minute um, to, you know, the, the heart rate target you would use for cycling. Um, so for an easy ride, you're going out and targeting 140 beats a minute, um, you know, 150 to 155 is probably an, uh, an equivalent workload, uh, for cross-country skiing. Um, what a lot of, uh, less proficient cross-country skiers notice, um, is that it can be really hard, uh, to, to work easy, um, because of the, the technical demands, you know, similar to swimming, I get in a pool and I'm working, uh, my absolute hardest and I am not moving anywhere. Um, so, you know, you, you get on your skis and you can just flail around, um, and, and work perfectly hard, uh, but not move particularly fast. Uh, so in cross-country skiing, we're trying to have the balance of, uh, of technical proficiency and, uh, you know, just maximal, uh, aerobic power output. Cross-country skiing, you know, like swimming is a very technique intensive sport. Um, you know, whereas cycling, 
yes, there's some technique involved, but uh, most would agree it's, it's generally an, an, it's an engine sport. Um, you know, you're trying to get that engine as big as possible. Um, well, we also want a big engine for cross-country skiing. You know, that big engine doesn't do you a heck of a lot of good uh, unless you can um, use it to produce power in a way that will move you forward. Um, so we do a lot of technique work. You know, our training this time of year is is fairly balanced between uh, classic roller skiing, skate roller skiing, and running. Um, and then some athletes will utilize cycling as a sort of an additional aerobic workout. Um, you know, when they when they have extra time. Um, but we're able to do uh, some some we, we call it ski imitation, uh, bounding or ski walking, um, and that fits in you know well with run training. Um, and then we do our, our technique work uh, real specifically on roller skis. So roller skiing is yeah, it's a great way to improve your technique, but uh, it also requires you to be fairly proficient on your skis uh, or you risk you know, falling. Um, falling on snow has a relatively, uh, relatively low impact. You know, it's, you know, you're not going to lose a ton of skin and, and chances are you won't get hurt. Uh, falling on roller skis has a slightly higher uh, a higher level of consequence, you know, much like road cycling. Um, you go down, you're losing some skin, and, and there's potential for, for greater injury. And I remember some of my early physiology classes, the, the way it was explained to me is humans are designed to either be moving or essentially lying down. Because when you're lying down, you, your body no longer has to fight gravity. The, the blood can get back to the heart much more easily. But when you are in the standing position, you need to be moving to get those muscle pumps working. And, and actually, I don't know why they put this in one of my physiology books, but they mentioned that there was an old form of torture where they would just make people stand without moving at all. And eventually they'd pass out because all the blood would pull down in their feet. Yeah, it's also called guard duty. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a modern form of that, which it's, or it's orthostatic intolerance, venous pooling and a fainting reflex. So the brain basically protects itself. Uh, evolution has equipped the brain with a way to say, you know what, if I'm not getting enough oxygen, then I'm just going to make you lie down. And then you do, you know, and so it is a fairly fail safe method for rapidly returning adequate blood flow to the brain and the brain decides, you know, it's the decider and it says my blood flow is a priority. And so we have various reflexes, including the fainting reflex and the Cushing reflex, which will just drive blood pressure up crazy uh, to, to get blood flow to the brain during times of stress or, you know, in a, in a, in a situation where uh, not doing so can lead to death. Uh, so we've got a lot of these, you know, <laughs> we've got a lot of this evolutionary baggage that helps us to survive under the, under, you know, conditions that perhaps aren't so normal today, but, but they're, they, those reflexes are still relevant when we're exercising. And a quick side note or tangent, since we're on the subject, um, we have little one-way valves in our venous system because yeah, the muscles can pump that blood back up, but in between the, the muscles contracting, gravity could just pull that blood back down. So you have those one-way valves that then close and, and keep the blood higher up. And that's one of the reasons if you get massage or if you're doing foam rolling, you only ever want to put pressure towards the heart because if you, you massage away from the heart, you can damage those valves. 
Yeah, and it's a great point. And, and it also feeds another issue is that as we get older, uh, there is a risk of blowouts. And, and you start to see guys like me that have some vein in their calf or their leg that looks kind of like, you know, it, it's gotten wiggly. It's no longer smooth and straight. It's it's kind of become like a, like a I don't know, Alp Duez uh, hairpin curve. And, and, and that is a vein that is basically blown out and those valves aren't working anymore. Um, and, and I have one because of a blood clot that happened to me. So, but it's, it's fairly common in, you know, I see quite a few middle-aged endurance athletes and I'll see a calf and I'm like, yep, they got to blow out, you know, and then, then you wear the pressure socks or, you know, and, and stuff to, to help keep, blood from pooling in the, in the, in the calf or, or so forth. So this, all this stuff fits together and it's part of that, that basic understanding of the, the hemodynamics me and hemodynamics just means the movement of blood uh, in the system. And what are the various variables that are influencing that relationship between um, stroke volume, which is the amount of blood being pushed out each beat and heart rate. And you put those two together and you get cardiac output, which is oxygen delivery. I mean, that, that's essentially putting the limitations on oxygen delivery. So it's, it's, it's a valuable, you know, understanding these basics is pretty valuable information for any endurance exerciser because that's your basic pump. And, and it's worthwhile to know how that pump is working. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up cardiac output because stroke volume um, and, and the rate of the heart, um, so the, 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 the full cardiac output, that is not sport-specific at all. In any endurance sport, you're, you, you're hopefully going to improve that cardiac output. But when you get to the actual oxygen delivery to the muscles, that can be a little sport-specific. So, for example, cycling is almost exclusively your legs, so you're going to really see the body focus on oxygen delivery to, to those muscles, where if you're doing something like Nordic skiing, you're using your full body, so there's going to have to be um, delivery to all muscles, which is certainly going to um, both impact heart rate, also impact any sort of peripheral ad adaptations. So... I guess that's the, the next question to you is what is general and then how does the individual sports impact this oxygen delivery? Right. Well, it's a great question and it's a fun one too, because again, you can kind of get into this evolutionary aspect and say, well, we, we've gone from basically being four limb to two limb dominant. And so, when you put athletes in that four limb situation where all four limbs need blood flow at the same time, like in cross country skiing, then you really put the heart under, uh, I won't say duress. I mean, the, you're challenging, you're challenging blood flow delivery because now you've got to open up the valves to multiple limbs at the same time. And so, if you know, this is one of the more challenging cardiovascular situations. And I think it's one of the reasons why we tend to see some of the biggest VO2 max values in cross country skiing, uh, because it is that quadrupedal situation 
that that will it will create the greatest amount of muscle mass that's active at the same time. Uh, rowing is also a quadrupedal situation, but you're sitting you're sitting down, so that kind of changes again the hemodynamics a bit. So I I always found when I was doing cross country skiing. And, and trying to climb up a hill, I just thought, man, this is the hardest thing to do from just a straight up, you know, feeling it in your lungs and, and your heart standpoint, if that makes sense. Uh, whereas when you move to cycling or skating, you, the, the amount of muscle mass that is active is, is smaller. So, um, you feel more, it, it almost feels more acutely limited by what's happening in the local muscle. Does that, does that yep. ring true for you? No, that makes a lot of sense. And that raises the question of, so particularly if you're using heart rate zones to train, can you use the same heart rate zones for, for all the different sports or is it can, that going to become more sports specific? Yeah, that's a good question. And there's been a fair bit of research on that. And what you can basically, the basic rule of thumb is that running in general, running will elicit the highest maximum heart rate. And in particular, running up a, a grade, you know, so if we want to make sure we get a good maximum heart rate test, we're going to have people run on a hill or do, you know, do a couple of intervals on a hill and then do an all out effort on the hill. Uh, or on a treadmill and so forth. Most people will get their highest heart rate then, especially if they're untrained. Uh, and in most studies, even if they're trained, there tends to be a small difference. Running will be maybe five beats higher than cycling or you know, five, seven, eight beats. And then compared with swimming, running may be 10 to 12 beats higher than what we would see as a peak heart rate for swimming, a peak heart rate for cycling and then a max heart rate for uh, running. And, and this is so typical that we even use those terms, peak and max, whereas peak is the um, sport-specific maximum or the highest heart rate you see in that modality. And max is just true max. It's the highest heart rate this athlete sees in any activity. Okay. Uh, so you'll see a lot of that peak versus max. And that's that's the reason that that is there is because there are differences from sport to sport. If you're a triathlete or if you're just a recreational athlete and you're jumping on, you're going to run and you haven't been running in a while. then you'll probably feel like your heart rate is just way too high uh, at first because your body's just not used to running. Uh, number one. And number two, there's some there's some hemodynamic differences, meaning heart rate tends to be higher anyway. Joe Gambles, a former professional triathlete turned coach, is used to needing different ways to pace efforts depending on the sport. Let's hear some of the ways he addresses that challenge. For running, it's uh, pace, pace and heart rate, obviously, and the best gauge of that is an open half marathon sort of effort and look at what your average heart rate is for that. So you can pull that data from maybe a 70.3 race that they've they've done recently you could get them to do throw them into a running race or something like that and use that data but yeah definitely things like your heart rate in running is is a lot higher uh you're using a, a lot more muscles and uh and probably generating a little bit more heat and in triathlon the 
run is last. So you're at that point dehydrated. You're running at the hotter part of the day. So it's it's difficult heart rate. Um, I think in running uh, pacing uh, is is probably more uh, important. I think is like. It's, I look at it two ways because it's professional. You know, you need to run this pace to be competitive. When you're coaching an amateur, you, they sort of they know you can use more um, like metrics, like heart rate, to sort of uh, give them a guide of because they maybe don't know what their limits are. Whereas professional, they know what their limit is and what they need to do. Yeah, you know, runners tend to talk more about pace. They do. When when they're prescri- you prescribing a workout, it's do this at your 10K pace, do this at your marathon pace. And it's amazing runner's ability to really just go, yeah, 10K pace. I know exactly what that is. You won't see that many runners using heart rate. Like you'll see a lot of triathletes and, and professional um, triathletes using heart rate in running. And I think heart rate, it, it, it's also it, in triathlon, it tells you, it's a great indicator of how fatigued you are as well. And it's, that's obviously a, a, another t- a tangent that like for me, if my heart rate wasn't responsive, it means I was in, in the depths of fatigue and I needed to have some time away and rest. Well, I was actually just talking with an athlete a, a couple of weeks ago who was a, a pretty well-trained runner and had just taken up cycling. I felt bad for him because he knew his running heart rate zones, and when he got on the bike, uh, he tried to train at the same zones. He was asking me, "Am I, am I a wimp here? I can't. That's killing me to try to hit those same heart rates." And, right, exactly. And my response was, you "Need to adjust your zones. Your zones." It just gives me this look. What are you talking about? I don't get it. I'm like cycling zones and heart and and running heart rate zones are different. And you just saw this look in his face of aha. Now it all makes sense. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> An epiphany. <laughs> yeah. And it's it's double jeopardy if you're going from running to cycling uh, because you'll be used to a higher heart rate anyway just because of those, those so-called hemodynamic issues I was talking about. Plus, you won't have the local muscular adaptations. So you're hitting your so-called threshold power at a, at a much lower heart rate than you – feel like you should be and it gets better if you keep cycling of course and what we see with really well-trained uh, triathletes is the, those differences start to really uh, shrink so so it, there is a training issue and, and in cross-country skiing the parallel is that if you compare their vo2 max uh, skiing with all four limbs or running it is obviously higher than if they're just using their upper body, like in double polling. But when they're really fit and it's race season, that gap shrinks. So their upper body capacity gets closer to their whole body capacity. Uh, it's one of the key signs we see is like, all right, this athlete's ready to roll. They're, they're ready for the, the season uh, because they've added in the specific upper body training on the snow. Maybe this is a, a silly question, but um, just to be clear, the the heart rate zones that you're talking about between the different sports, um, there are clear differences there. What about you know the two thresholds that we often talk about? Do those shift similarly? Yeah, they, they do. Um, again, that the the amount of shift can vary depending on the level of the athlete and the amount of and the amount of training that they're doing, you know, these elite triathletes, 
are doing so much training in all these different modalities that they are so well trained peripherally that, that that there's very little difference in where in, in the either the max heart rate or the thresholds. But for most of us that are focusing on one or the other, we will see a difference. If I go out running now, you know, my, my threshold heart rate is going to be low and running, relatively speaking, because I'm better trained for cycling. So there's a specificity issue. If you have a top trained cyclist, they won't necessarily have as high a VO2 in running, VO2 max. If you have a top trained runner, they'll tend to have an underperforming cycling VO2 max. But if you have a top trained triathlete, triathlete, there will be very small differences. So there is a, you know, you can even out the gaps. And that's why the basic, my, my take home message to people would be that look guys if, or, and, and ladies, if you're going to do multiple modalities and you want to get it right, then you need to be conscientious of these differences and adjust, adjust the heart rate. You can expect that the cycling heart rate will be a bit lower at first. If you're a runner and you're transitioning to cycling and doing both to, you know, get your expectations down, bring down the, the, you know, and go on feel at first. And then as you go on feel, then you'll start to see, okay, 130 on the bike feels like the, about the same as 142 on when I'm running, you know, or something, you know, I'm just making up some numbers, but you, but you can calibrate uh, at least initially just using your, your good brain that perceives that, you know, this feels about the same, the, these two heart rates, but they're not the same heart rate. But when I'm at, at this heart rate for running and this heart rate for cycling, it feels about the same, about the same degree of uncomfortableness or whatever. Uh, and so that's a decent way to get started with making that calibration. And that I think goes to the importance of, um, you know, having a good sense of yourself, know, knowing what, something feels like, whether it's on your own scale, but, you know, maybe more so uh, that RPE scale that a lot of us are familiar with, that Borg um, came up with many years ago, uh, and and having an anchor for what that feels like, what a three is, what a seven is, what that means on the on a run, what that means if you're out uh, cross-country skiing, etc., so that you can make those transitions back and forth between the different sports more, uh, a little bit. Uh, easier. Right. And, and, and like your friend said, you know, am I a wimp? No, you're not a wimp. The, the answer is almost always that you're not a wimp. It is that you are experiencing a difference in your local fatigue, your local training uh, adaptations. And, and it shouldn't make you appreciate how well-trained you are in that thing you're used to, because that's why you're feeling such a difference. So you're not a wimp, but you are specifically trained yep. and, and that specificity does matter. So that gets me to the second part of that, that question um, that I, I asked a few minutes ago. You know, this, I think this is getting a little outmoded, interested in your opinion on this, but they used to talk a lot about central and peripheral conditioning. And central is kind of code word for that cardiac output where peripheral is the muscle's ability to take in and use oxygen. And I know in that a lot of that older research, they really felt central conditioning isn't that specific at all. You can train it in any sport and it's going to transfer to the other sports. But 
peripheral conditioning is, is highly specific. What's your feeling about it? Is that an outdated concept or still highly relevant? Well, I do think that the the very black and white distinction that we used to kind of, you know, say, well, interval training is is central stimulation. We're trying to increase stroke volume and and low intensity is peripheral. That's just not true. I mean, it's just not black and white like that. We see a lot of uh, overlapping. And I'm going to introduce for at least a lot of you a word. Uh, this is the word of the day for you. Uh, it's called symorphosis, functional symorphosis. You might say a symmetry of our morphology, symorphosis. You, you, you have no idea how upset I am about that because we've used that word in the show. I cannot pronounce it. <laughs> and you just did it so easily. Yes. Well, I am a professor, Trevor. So that's the He's key difference. He's very worldly, too. He's got a lot of languages rattling around in his head. Oh, oh yeah. 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 When, I was, so. when I was doing my master's, <laughs> I had to do a presentation on it. And I spent the whole night before my presentation, not going through my notes, practicing pronouncing that word. <laughs> Give it a shot well, don't right feel, now. Uh, let's I, hear it. I can't. I always go simomorph. Like I, I stumble. It. I had. Yeah, no, I was saying you were being quite elegant. And I interrupted you. So please, if you can get back there, <laughs> go ahead. Yeah, but this big term, functional simorphosis, it's in the comparative physiology literature. But what it basically says is that there is a, a certain degree of elegant connection between the adaptations at the cardiovascular level and the adaptations at the peripheral level. They're connected and they are in tune with each other. Uh, so you, you don't see huge differences. You're not gonna see an athlete that achieves incredible adaptations at the local muscular level and their heart is just crap. You know, it doesn't work that way. There is a, sym a symmetry that, that happens kind of naturally as a function of the training process. And, and we see it in nature and that, that, that you don't see an overdeveloped heart relative to the musculature. You don't typically see a massively overdeveloped musculature from an endurance standpoint. And then a heart that has, is just totally untrained. It cannot happen essentially because they are both active during every training session. So they, they co adapt, um, does that, does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. You can't separate them. So when I'm training low intensity, 70% heart rate max, 65, 70, I've still got a high stroke volume. I'm still stretching that heart muscle with every beat. I'm still generating a stimulus that maintains or increases the cardiovascular adaptations. And, and, and when we talk about cardiac adaptations, we have to, again, see that there, there's an elegant symmetry because it's not only the heart getting literally bigger, meaning it, it scales up its ventricular volume, but there's more blood. So if you got a bigger pump, you need a bigger volume of blood in the pump apparatus and the body says, well, then I'll make more blood. So that is happening at the same time. There is a symmetry or a, you know, a synchronization between these different adaptations, they're all being connected. Well, so the thing I want to throw in here as well, which, you know, gets at another side of the elegance. You, you brought up, wait for it, symmorphosis. <laughs> Brilliant. Got it right. Well done. Got it. Got Thank it. you. 
A lot of, so, you know, certainly when I, I read some of the old research on that, what it came, some of it came out of is there was this question in oxygen delivery of what is the limiting step from when you breathe in oxygen to when the, the lungs deliver it to the blood, to the cardiac output, to the, the muscles taking up the oxygen. There, there was this longstanding uh, question of what is the rate limiting step. And I read a great paper on symorphosis that basically said there, there isn't that everything is equally developed because our bodies are remarkably efficient and why would you have one part overbuilt that just can't be used? So they're they're all essentially on, on equal footing. Yeah, and that's a great example is the body. And I think that's important to remember. The body is super efficient. And so it doesn't keep adaptations that aren't needed and it doesn't create adaptations that aren't needed either. So, so, uh, an, an exception to this, or, or humans can mess this up with, with um, like in horses, where we, we are artificially shifting the balance. So horses have through, you know, essentially our, our long-term genetic ma- manipulation, horses have an overdeveloped heart relative to their lung capacity. And so thoroughbred horses have just incredible hearts. They are genetically, they don't get heart disease. They, they, they are just, the heart is the, you know, is what that it's what has been adapted for cardiac function. But unfortunately, what has resulted is, is that you get frothing at the mouth. You get horses that really struggle when they come over the line because their their cardiac capacity, their blood delivery to the lungs is outpacing the capacity of the lungs. And then they get edema in the lungs and they get a lot of problems. So that is an example that that doesn't happen in nature, but it has happened due to breeding. Interestingly, in terms of being overbuilt there are only two animals on the planet that have overbuilt lungs and that's humans and pronghorns. I did not know that pronghorn antelope. Well, there you go. And yeah, and we do have a bit of an overdevelopment in the sense that if you, the way we can, the reason we say that's true is, as you know, we can do a maximum ventilation test and have just people voluntarily breathe as fast and hard as they can for, uh, X number of seconds, and you can calculate their maximum ventilation volume. And then you can have them do a VO2 max test on a treadmill and you measure their ventilation during that test. And what we see is that with untrained people, there's a big gap. You know, they might have 150 liters a minute uh, maximum voluntary ventilation, and they only come up to 120 during the test. So they've got a, a reserve, a ventilatory reserve capacity meaning it's it is overbuilt relative to their heart but then you take the elite athlete and you you find out that that gap has been significantly reduced yeah um in fact you can you can start to see some desat so-called desaturation where the lungs are starting to reach the point where they're not able to fully oxygenate the blood going through the lungs because this athlete has got a 40 liter per minute cardiac output and he's moving, he's moving, or it's usually guys because they've got the biggest hearts relative to body size. They're moving more blood through the lungs than the lungs can fully saturate with oxygen. But, but untrained for most of us there, like you say, there is a, a relative um, uh, 
surplus. And that's why people can survive uh, after having a lung removed, you know, because that other lung can actually keep them going pretty well. And they can even run a marathon with one lung. There's this wonderful article I was just reading this week, and I, I put a tweet about it on, on, I think it's from 2018, but it's a, by a guy with my same namesake, Steven van der Zwart, uh, a Dutch guy, and he really gets into the weeds about what is happening at the muscular level and the adaptations that we see. And, and he took 13 cyclists. They were some of them, they varied from specialists on in road cycling to track cyclists, uh, time trialists to sprinters. And, and what was interesting was, is that, you know, these guys vary quite a bit in their in their specialization. But when he looked at their fiber type as just one example, the difference between these these elite level road cyclists, they were at about 70, 30, uh, excuse me, 60, 40. Uh, no, wait, I'm going to mess this up. Uh, slow twitch was about 70%. Fast twitch was about 30%. Okay. On these elite level distance athletes. So, so 70% slow, 30% fast. But then the sprinters who are these elite sprinters, meaning they should be kind of the opposite. They were at 60, 40. So it, it was only a 10% shift in fiber type that was distinguishing the road specialist from the track sprint specialist. So that tells you, in my mind, it was very interesting because it tells you how subtle the adaptation, the set of adaptations are at the, at the muscular level, you know, and, and you're, you're moving lactate across fibers and you've got all these capillaries and you're just shifting the balance a bit in the adaption and the movement of, of, uh, of oxygen and lactate across these different kinds of fibers. And that shift in the balance is enough to distinguish a sprinter who makes a living doing 10 second sprints from a, a road cyclist that makes a living doing 40 minute climbs. So, I think that's that tells us a little bit about the the elegance of the adaptive process. Well, we talked a little bit about some of those um, those cardiac differences, and I, I and all the while I'm thinking to myself, this probably has something to do with um, the difference in how muscle firing patterns take place in different sports, how we move in different modalities. Sometimes we're sitting on a bike. Sometimes we're holding our own weight while we run, et cetera. So I think it's time we turn our attention to muscle loading and muscle function. Um, maybe start us off, Dr. Seiler, by uh, saying I'm wrong or right, that it, it does have a lot to do with the, the way we move and the, the way the muscles are firing. Yeah, I'm going to agree with you 100 percent that that's where a lot of the variation is. It's a lot of the subtlety and fun. Uh, if, I, if I was going to try to, you know, do some basic delineation of saying, yeah, OK, what are the differences? Well, one is this loading eccentric concentric part, which, mm -hmm. you know, is running, you know, is there's a lot of pounding on the legs there every time you step. The, the quad muscles are basically shock absorbers. So most of their function is to eccentrically um, 
decompress or compress. They they are or or receiving the load, and then as you roll through, you go over to a concentric phase where you're pushing backwards against the ground, and that's the glutes and the hamstrings and that. So you got first shock absorption, and then a push. And, and so what do you, what happens during a run? You, you get fatigued, you get the, the shock absorbers start breaking down and they start hurting like crap. Uh, if you're running on asphalt, especially, and particularly if it's a long run, if it's a 40 K, then you get a lot of muscle damage, you get sore, right? You get sore doing squats and so forth. Well, cycling, you don't have that. You've got just the concentric phase. No eccentric loading, no stretch, no tearing of the muscle, micro tearing of the muscles. So that's one of the big differences right straight away is just that basic pattern of stretch, contract and running versus just contract, contract and cycling. Um, And in practice, I would say that one of the things it does is it makes runners more susceptible to the hard sessions, they need not only that recovery from an energy standpoint and an autonomic nervous system standpoint, but they just need to repair muscle damage. And that's not as prevalent for the cyclist. So that's one of the things I see when working with runners is that there's maybe they sense the, the fatigue in their legs more easily just because they're feeling it as re, as actual, you know, the legs are hurting uh, because they really pounded the heck out of them doing 20 times 400 meters on a track or a long road run. And, and the cyclist will be able to get away with multiple days in a row that, and they're fatiguing, but they're not feeling that, that fatigue that will tell them take a rest day. So that's a, that's a clear distinction. The other more subtle distinction that I would say is the, the duty cycle, or I call it the push and glide versus staccato um, rhythm. So if you're talking cross-country skiing, rowing, speed skating, you get this whoosh, you get this hard push and glide, and you get into this rhythm where the push comes and then you've got a long glide phase. So you've got a longer recovery phase between each muscle contraction, okay, versus running uh, cycling, which is more staccato. You're just in, you're at, actually both of them are at, if you count both limbs, you're at about 180 cycles per minute, right? In running, we typically say a, a cadence of 180, but they're counting both limbs, whereas in cycling, we're counting one and, and we're saying 90 is typical. So it's actually the same. Mm-hmm. I don't think I don't think, think people think about that too much, but it's it's 180 contraction cycles per minute. One, you know, if you count left plus right, well, that's really staccato. It's there's not a big gap or a big time delay between each one. Whereas if I'm rowing, I may on an easy day or you know a low intensity long r- row, I'm down at 18 strokes per minute. So it's like whoosh and then glide whoosh glide so the force <laughs> signature is very different does that make sense and and, and this is a gearing issue uh, if you think about it is that in these push and glide sports you can use gearing to control intensity 
you can you have this a lot of modulation in the frequency of contraction so the rower can modulate between way down at 15 which feels like you know you it's tough because you got to really balance the boat as you glide you slide back up to the catch and then you're up at 45 you know so you've got a threefold change in frequency from you know the lowest uh, cadence you might be at to the highest same thing with you know in in uh, cross country skiing you watch the really good skiers they are really slowing down on the flats you know and they're just working on their uh, weight transfer from leg to leg they're pushing off and they've got this smooth glide that's one of the things that distinguishes the really good ones is they've got such good balance that they have a long glide phase whereas the putts is like me we're <laughs> our our center of gravity is kind of in between and we're not gliding long enough on one ski uh so the so Push and glide is is one difference, and that that creates the the potential to control your intensity with the frequency, and then you try to keep the force signature at least at a um, a decent quality all the time. Okay, and and so that's one of the things I talk about with athletes in terms of intensity distribution. The only thing that may be problematic for someone that's trying to let's say row or kayak or something and say, well, I'm going to do this polarized model, but I can't, I can't paddle uh, at a low enough intensity, you know, because then I'm not actually technically rowing very correctly or I'm not paddling correctly. And so that I would say, yeah, then, then you need to at least get your technique where you have enough force going through the movement that it, translates up that the technique is a, is the same at low intensity as it is at high intensity does that make sense yep and so that's a that's an issue with these push and glide sports is rhythm that's why they're wonderful they you know because when you get when you're in the rhythm and you really it's working for you it, it gives you a feeling that I, I i'm sorry i just can't get from running or cycling uh it because there's so much there is that beautiful rhythmicity to it, but it's also a gearing thing. And it's something we can, we use consciously in the intensity uh, control. Whereas in running, you wouldn't, you, you know, if you're at running slow, you're at 170 cadence. And if you're running really fast, you're at 195. So it's not a big range, not a big difference. The frequency is part of the picture, but it's not a big part. It's mostly just pushing harder each step. Makes sense. Same, same for cycling, essentially, you know, you, you're not dramatically changing your cadence. You are a little, but not a lot. You're just pushing harder on the pedals. Let's hear again from Adam St. Pierre as he gives us more details as a ski coach on the challenge of cadence of these more staccato type activities. When you look at running or cycling, uh, they're talking about stride rates or, or pedal cadences you know, in the, the 80 to 90, uh, sometimes 90 plus range. Uh, whereas rowing, I think optimal is like 28 to 34 strokes per minute. Um, but of course it depends on, you know, what, what the other people in the boat, if you're doing a, you know, an eight man or, uh, or, or multi-person boat. Um, swimming is somewhere in the middle in terms of stroke rate. Skiing uh, is totally variable. Um, typically, you know, you have your, your energy production, your propulsion phase, and then you have your glide phase. 
Um, and depending on the terrain, you know, the type of snow, um, ski preparation, you know, athlete fitness, um, athlete balance, you know, two athletes can be going the same speed and going at very different, you know, cycle rates. Um, so these are all uh, factors that we, we practice in training. Um, so we, we try to teach skiing as gears. Um, and this, you know, is similar to, uh, to cyclists, you know, we're not talking about, you know, an, an 11, 28 or something, but, um, you've got different gears for different speeds, essentially. And, and the speed is, uh, is dependent on terrain and snow conditions and, and athlete proficiency, but at your slowest speeds, you know, you may use a, a diagonal skate or a, a herringbone technique, depending if you're skater classic, um, which might have, a you know, your arms and legs are moving independently kind of like running, running up a hill, um, in, in less steep terrain or in faster conditions, you know, you may use a, a V1, um, or, a, a, an offset type skate technique, or you may use a diagonal stride in classic, um, and then different techniques for, uh, for faster and faster techniques all the way down to a, to a tuck, you know, when you're going down a hill and, uh, it no longer makes sense to, to continue to use energy to produce power. You just get into your most aerodynamic position and, and hang on. Um, so in doing so, like we think of cross country skiing as a, uh, a power endurance sport, uh, because unlike running and cycling, where you have a relatively steady power output throughout the, um, throughout the stride or throughout the, the pedal stroke, um, we apply you know, a lot of power very quickly. Um, and then we have sort of a recovery or a glide phase. Um, so similar to, to running or excuse me, similar to rowing in that respect. Um, so we do a, a fair amount of strength training, um, which may include plyometrics. It may include, you know, med ball slams, Olympic lifts. Uh, you know, we actually get propulsion from, from upper body and core as well. So, uh, we're focused a lot on, um, that all the muscle groups of the body and our, our strength training. Um, but then, you know, we work a lot on technique and, and balance because if you can't balance on a gliding ski in uncertain terrain, um, you know, all that power you put into it is, is getting wasted somewhere. Um, so there's, there's sort of a, a nuance between, you know, training just the, the aerobic uh, engine and, um, and, and the VO2 max lactate threshold type training that we'll do on foot or on skis or on roller skis um, or even on bike. Um, and then the more, more subtle you know, sort of neurological, uh, neuromuscular training to improve balance and technique. Um, and, and part of what I love about ski coaching is the, uh, sort of the, the art and science of, of mixing the two. Um, you know, ideal scenario, you can, you can train both. Um, but at certain points you've got to sort of favor one over the other. Next season starts now. Every year in September and October, I receive hundreds of emails from athletes looking for a coach or asking a training question. And as much as I try, I just don't have the time to answer them all. So this year, get your start to next season with our head coach, Ryan Kohler. Ryan is an exercise physiologist, a certified USA Cycling Level 1 coach, and he holds a master's in sports nutrition. Ryan heads up our virtual performance center at Fast Talk Labs, and now he's ready to help you. Schedule any help session or testing package with Ryan, and we will include a free one-month library membership to Fast Talk Laboratories. Next season starts now. 
Get your start at fasttalklabs.com slash solutions. So the question I have for you, um, so this is going to take a second to explain, but uh, I go back to the biomechanics lab that I worked at, and we were studying the muscle firing patterns and in, in various movements. And you know, when you're a cyclist, you kind of think, oh, well, it's, a, it's a quad sport. But actually, when you start thinking about all the different smaller stability muscles that are involved in the movement, in a single pedal stroke, you're recruiting 25, 30 different muscles um, over the course of that, that stroke, at, at, and they have to fire right at the right moments. Same thing with running, same thing with a lot of these sports. Mm. So in something with a higher cadence, like cycling or running, training those neural patterns is really key. Otherwise, things start firing at the wrong time or you get inappropriate co-contractions that can really mess up your your economy mm. so my question to you is in those higher so i'm already saying in those higher cadence sports training that neural side is really important in those slower sports like rowing or where you have that long glide is training that those neural patterns as critical well i think you're there's a different criticality as a former rower myself what what becomes critical there is the balance issue that you know what characterizes the great rowers the great skiers is their weight the, their perfect balance perfect symmetry in the boat you know everything's in balance you're sitting on a boat not in a or your boat is on the water not in the water in rowing in a sense so you you've got no balance that's intrinsic to the boat your balance is being achieved through your movements and the oars and so these low cadence workouts for rowers and for skiers are about achieving powerful pushes and maintaining balance so that the glide phase is optimized in rowing we say you win the race between the strokes because it's the efficiency of the glide are you are you getting the mo you know maximum centimeters out of each push because you have perfect balance so those push and glide sports they use low cadence to work on that and then it's if you can't row well slow meaning a slow cadence you won't row well fast that's kind of the mantra of rowing and 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 cross cross country skiing is you've got to have technical mastery at low cadence then then you transfer it up now for cycling you know whether you're at 70 or 90 or 110 cadence it doesn't it's not harder to sit on the bike it's not harder to balance you know what so it's a different issue and then we get over to what you're talking about which is the subtleties of of firing patterns among these multiple muscles that you're you're including the core you know the the um, stabilizers versus the the drivers and so forth uh, and i do think that probably for example it's definitely if you want to be a sprint cyclist they've got to do a lot of high cadence work because they they just have to be able to maximize power through through high cadence and, and and optimize that neuromuscular firing pattern. Now, how much does it matter? How much does the firing pattern change for 
you know, after, you know, a cyclist that started it one year and then five years later, how much better are they? I don't know if, I don't know what the data says about that. Uh, but I would assume that there is, there are some adaptations that make, that um, contribute to increased efficiency. I would also think that in a, in a push and glide sport, since you are relying so much on that glide that you you better work on your techniques so that you maximize the the power with each stroke or push so that the glide you, you maximize the glide if that makes sense yeah so true? yeah they go together if you can't if i can't stay in balance and slide up into what we call the catch which is that compressed point where my legs are bent i'm in a squat position i'm ready to take the water and and pull or push well, yeah, the one the one leads to the other. So when you're in good balance, you can you can pull hard. When you're able to pull hard, you get nice speed, which gives you a longer glide phase. So there's a there's a reciprocal kind of deal. And when everything's going well, then yeah, you just feel like you just want to just keep pulling hard every stroke, and because the magic is there. But when everything is when it's not going well, then the whole the whole cycle feels like crap. You know, so it, they the errors or cyclical in the sense that one, there is no way to disconnect the problems or the good rowing. It's a pattern. It's a cycle. Right. right. Uh, and, and these push and glide sports, that's, that's the issue. And that's when you'll hear them, you know, like, well, I had 10 good strokes today. You know, they, they, they strung together 10 strokes in a row that felt really good. And that was enough to bring them back tomorrow to try again, uh, because it is so darn hard to, to get perfection, to achieve perfection, like golf, you know? Yes. So I think that is a big difference that we see in those sports. When I work with speed skaters, I mean, they're so tuned in to that feeling of weight transfer from, from push to push and so forth. And those kinds of things, I don't think we talk about as much in cycling. Let's let's move on. I know you guys could talk science all day, but let's move on from the science, the deeper science, and talk somewhat more about the training implications, the characteristics here. And Dr. Seiler, as a uh, a proponent, as a uh, almost a a um, popularizer of the polarized training method, I'm curious to know if, based on all the different sports and athletes you've looked at and the research you've done. Um, over the years, how the polarized training approach works for these different methods, if it looks the same, if it works the same, if it, it you know, how, how does that look in practice? The heart of the model is that a large percentage of the total volume of training is at this so-called low intensity, below that first lactate turn point, talking pace, you know, green zone. And that is... We see that in every single sport. So, so that um, fundamental anchor is there every time. But then the differentiation will be, okay, if, seven, if 80% of the sessions is, are low intensity and 20% are threshold plus, then what do those 20% look like? And there you see some variation. You see some uh, longer events where they'll do more threshold work. And you'll see the, the pure, the rowing events that last six minutes and the four-minute middle distance athletes and so forth. They may do more high-intensity work. So the, the way they're 
cutting up the pie of the of that twenty percent varies, but they're still doing the the green work, the the low intensity volume. They're still they still have the base work that they that is fundamental to the cyclist, the runner, the the swimmer, uh, the rower, and the skier. Uh, so that's what we've seen. Uh, but then there's there is the individual individualization, and then I guess the other issue is is um, that we are generally seeing that all of the sports they are careful with how they use the really high intensity work. Uh, the you know in a five zone model, the zone five sessions, the the really high lactate that you, you see surprisingly little of that actually. Uh, so it's not, you could argue and say, well, I'm going to summarize by saying easy stays easy and hard is harder, but actually easy stays easy and hard is hard, but not, not excessively hard because excessively hard every day will also break you down. And, and that we also see is a typical continuity factor in these different sports. So the basic recipe is surprisingly similar. Uh, across these sports you just but you need to be you, you get tuned into the subtleties of technique to the subtleties of local muscle fatigue running versus cycling and then maybe we could talk a little bit about whether there's some training transfer uh, you know we go back to that famous term cross training uh, yeah is there such a thing does it work um, so I think I'll, I'll take a pause and let you let you reflect on what I've said already. But I, I think that's probably relevant for the listener, too, is, is, hey, if I do cycling, will that make me a better runner? My first mentor, Glenn Swan, has experienced at a high level in multiple endurance sports, including cycling and skiing. He agrees that the principles are the same, but brings up one other important difference. Strategy. Well, the principles are the same. We're talking about using the same motor. So principles are there. And then in some of the other sports like cross-country skiing, technique is everything. Uh, so you can't just work on fitness. You have to work on technique. Cross-country ski racing, I was a good ski racer for a good long time. Um, but there's not quite so much strategy. There's, there's pacing and there are times when it's desirable to attack or to rest up. Uh, but cycling is an ultimate chess game. There's so much in cycling that is strategic that it never got old for me. You've heard the, the stories of uh, a pretty small race out in Windsor, New York, end of the season. And for a couple of years, I would go out there. I had no teammates necessarily. And there'd be these other teams of young guys who were definitely stronger and faster than me. But I would stir the pack up such that they would race against each other and rip each other's arms and legs off all day long. Then on the last lap, I would break away with one of those guys such that their team wouldn't be chasing. And I'd make sure he did plenty of work and drop him at the end. And at the picnic after the race one year, I overheard these guys saying, how did that old guy beat us? And you know, that's an ultimate compliment. They couldn't figure out that he might be old, fat, and slow, but 
He's smart. So before we get there, I actually do have some questions for you. And actually, there, there's something you just brought up, the, you know, don't make the, the hard too hard. And I have to mention this. I, I recently had a discussion with a few people on our forum uh, about that high-intensity work and brought up the fact that on one of our earlier episodes, you said you know, even the, the pros, you, you see when they do that high-intensity work, um, if they're doing something around that uh, the VT2, they accumulate somewhere in the 35 to 40 minutes of total time doing uh, at intensity. And the discussion on our forum was somebody did the math on that and said, that's only like 70, 80 TSS and, and didn't like it because they're like, well, that's not a hard workout. And I was trying to explain, but yeah, that's, that's fine. Yeah, I, I'm sad. It's a sad commentary on the misunderstanding of the TSS and what it actually measures, which has nothing to do with stress. <laughs> so, yep. but that's a that's that's fuel for another discussion. Uh, is is we're measuring load, not stress, when we when we start talking about TSS. Uh, it's a TLS. It's a training load score. Uh, the stress is measured a different way. Understanding how stressful achieving that load was is not a, is is takes different metrics, takes a different approach. So, if we can get that across in a different way, then I'm happy. I, I'm happy to try to help do that. But but that they are really different, and it's a sad commentary if people get so wrapped up in the TSS that they train um, wrong in their effort to achieve it, yeah. to achieve some number. No, I agree. And I like to point out to people, I can give you this sprint workout that will have you on the couch the rest of the day, and it registers about 35, 40 TSS. It registers exactly. as a recovery it's, ride. It, it, oh, yeah. I've even had my heart watch. I've had 20 millimolar lactate, and my heart watch told me I didn't do anything today. You know, it's just because the, the algorithms are – not they they can't take into account these really high intensity uh, impacts on muscle and and you know it's just counting heartbeats basically so now the question that i do want to ask you i'm i'm going to reference a study i believe you said this was some students of yours who who put together this study uh so it was uh, the the lead author was stogel and looked at the on a three zone model how all these different sports uh, broke up their training uh, across the different periods in the season. And the one thing that I found interesting was certainly in rowing in in cross country skiing, you saw an extreme polarization. They did almost nothing in zone two, but they did point out that cyclists tended to be a little more pyramidal meaning they did more time and so they still did the bulk of their training in zone one, but they would do more time in zone two than they would in zone three. And I've always wanted to ask you about that and whether you think that's the way it should be in cycling. They certainly concluded in the study that they felt cyclists would uh, improve their training if they polarized more than, than, than they currently are. But I, I want to hear your thoughts on this. 
Yeah, that was Thomas Stogwell and Billy Spierlich. And I think Stogwell's from Austria and Spierlich is based in Germany. So they weren't, they're not students of mine, but I'm, I know of them and I've communicated with them. And, and I, I think I was even a reviewer on one of their, on, on the review they initially did. And I, I challenged them to kind of really push me or push my work. And, 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 and that's, and they did. And they, they um, said, look, what about, pyramidal you know and so that's that was an important contribution uh to help us be more subtle because they were saying look things are getting po- called polarized that aren't really polarized you know the this, the training and distribute training intensity distribution has been called polarized w- just if it has a lot of low intensity and so they introduced some more subtlety in the language and i think that was good now yeah rowing and um um, let's see what was, I think skiing. We also see, uh, when our, when we've looked at the data, it's been very clearly polarized. And I think one of the reasons for that is that in rowing, particularly you have perfect control of the intensity you're on flat water. There's never hills to climb. Um, so you, you, and, and they do, they do doubles every day. They don't do these four hour workouts. They do multiple shorter workouts. So 90 minute workouts and the 90 minutes will be all low intensity and they won't, I mean, it'll just be whoosh, whoosh for 18 strokes a minute for an hour and a half. And there's no, you know, there, there, there is no stochasticity. And then they do their interval sessions and they're very clearly interval sessions. So yeah, they're, they're totally polarized. And then the same with skiers, they, they're pretty good at controlling that and they don't mess around too much in those middle intensities. Then you get to cycling. Well, the terrain dictates quite a bit of it. And you've got a lot of little subtle little bumps and, 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 you know, there is no such thing as a truly flat road, really, if you look carefully at the GPS. And so there's constant little perturbations in power. And then you get, uh, in a long ride, you get some leakage of the low intensity up due in part to cardiovascular, uh, you know, drift you get also, if you're doing the interval session in the middle of the ride, you get a lot of, of so-called threshold intensity, heart rate distribution, just because heart rates either going up through that zone or coming down through that zone. Does that make sense? Yes. Yes. So you get a lot of leakage of heart rate and power up and down through the threshold zone, even though you're not actually working at threshold. If I do 30 15s, you know, or, or 30 thirties, you know, Trevor, you've done some of these workouts. If you compare the power profile with the heart rate profile, they don't match up. Because you get a, bi- a bipolar power profile and, and you get a heart rate profile that's sitting square in the middle. Yep. Now, that's a good point. One of my favorite workouts is the, the classic Tabatas. But when I'm getting ready for the, to, you know, fine tune my form, it's the 2010s. And I'm either at a really high wattage or 100 watts. I'm, I'm, I'm going super easy. So if you look at the power, it's it's super polarized. But my heart rate, the whole workout is sitting right in the middle of that zone two or top end of that zone two. Yeah. Yeah. So so now how do you categorize that workout? Right. So that this is where we get into some uh, issues. The weeds get kind of thick. 
uh, in cycling because of the tendency towards the longer workouts with mixed, a bit of a mixed intensity profile where we add some so-called efforts during the ride. Yeah, you're going to get more. Um, the paints are going to mix. The colors are going to mix. And so green plus red equals yellow, you know, <laughs> or purple, really. But, but you know, it, it, it ends up being kind of in between on the intensity scale uh, in the intensity distribution. So I do think that's one of the reasons you, it looks like you're doing a lot of threshold work that you may actually not be doing, or at least not intentionally. Well, I'm glad to hear you say that because I felt the same. We actually did a video that's up on our uh, our website where we addressed this, and I said exactly the same thing, which is you're not seeing these athletes in doing a ton of intentional threshold work, so in that zone too. It's just leakage. It's it's going up into the lower end of that zone when they're trying to do zone one work or dropping down a little bit when they're trying to do their high intensity. Yeah. And, and if you, let's say my daughter does, or she's running, but the same would be in cycling with me. If I do say a five times eight minute session and I pace it right, then those first couple of eight minutes are going to kind of be zone three. And then I'm going to glide into zone four throughout the session. You know what I mean? There's a kind of a upward drift. So, so even though I hold power constant, heart rate is going up. So it doesn't, it's not stable in zone three or zone four. It kind of probably is upper zone three at the start and upper four at the end. Um, and that is, you know, I'm happy with that workout if, if I held power. Right. So, so then you're going to say, well, then you work quite a bit at your threshold. Well, actually, no, I didn't. I was in, I was at zone four power the whole way, but you know, I'm 55 and it takes my heart rate a while to get really rocking. So, so, you know, I, I have to account for that and I have to pace it. Uh, so that's, that's one issue. The other issue is that, uh, Hey, you know, there is nothing wrong with a threshold session. And, and, and that may be, it may seem like that Steven Seiler is, is saying that threshold sessions are toxic. No, I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is that threshold sessions are hard sessions and they need to be treated as such. They need to be the accounting system needs to uh, treat them that way. And probably, you know, if you're going to do a threshold session, then do it, you know, then extend. Because usually the limiting issue on these threshold is not the intensity, it's the duration you can hold. And so if I, if people want to do tough threshold sessions, then get into your threshold, but then do more work there. And then it's going to be a tough session and it needs to be in the accounting scene as a high intensity, high stress session with appropriate recovery time uh, thereafter. So getting back to comparing the training in these different sports, it's, it's, you know, you, you've definitely demonstrated that they all polarize. But it does seem there is one thing that is very different is how volume is added. And, and that seems to be where cycling is a bit of a unique sport because all the other sports do it by frequency of workouts. Yeah, or, or you might say what happens is it's almost like uh... – cellular proliferation first the cells get bigger and then they split uh so first the workouts get longer but then they reach some some critical length 
And then they start splitting up and say, well, now I'm going to start doing two workouts. So, and, and for runners, that's probably, you know, somewhere between 60 and 80 minutes, they'll rate maybe 90, but they're not going to do two hour easy runs. That, that's a once a week kind of thing. Uh, so, yeah. So that, and the same with rowing, you don't see too many rowers doing two hour rows. They're doing 80 minute rows, 60 minute rows, but they're doing two of them or, or, you know, or two times 85, 90 minutes. So they're getting three hours of work, but, but the younger athletes will do once a day. And then as they get older, we're going to, we're lengthening their workouts. They're going from eight kilometers to 10 to 12 to 14. And then we reach some point where we say, all right, Bjorn, uh, you've reached the point where I think we're going to do two workouts a week or two days a week. You're going to do doubles. Are you ready? Yes, I'm ready. So, so that's, that's the transition. Uh, it's, it's a it's first lengthen, 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 and then split. Cycling doesn't do the split. It just gets longer, 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 you know, <laughs> but I think we're seeing some of that split now. Do you think that's a good thing? Do you think that this is uh, something other sports have figured out that cycling's behind the, a little behind? On? Uh, maybe. I mean, I, I do think it's a bit, a bit of a Winnie the Pooh, both <laughs> wanting to have my cake and eat it too, that probably there is um, utility in both. Uh, we, we're actually, I'm, I'm gearing up. I, I've got a application in the European union for a big study, looking at precisely this comparing uh, long four hour rides with two times two hour and actually doing, doing a three hour, a three week intervention and trying to see if we can tease apart stress responses and adaptive responses to the two different approaches. You know, it's going to be, it's a tough study to achieve uh, to find enough cyclists that can will and are, are willing to do this kind of thing. But I think that's where we've got to go. We've got to look at not only the adaptations, but also the stress responses and, and see how the balance is being shifted by these two approaches. Um, and, and the literature there's, there's hints in both directions that, yeah, like you, I know you're a fan of the long sessions. I've, I've listened to the podcast about this, the, the long versus two times short. And I think it was really good. And, and it goes into those weeds and, and the, the pluses and minuses of the two, because the longer sessions you in that workout, you generate, uh, uh, you amplify some adaptive signals probably with glycogen depletion and so forth. Uh, whereas with the two times two type scenario, you, you create maybe a longer window of, of, um, of, of, um, responsiveness. So it, boy, the jury's out. I don't think there's a clear answer and probably we're not going to end up even with some more research. We're probably not going to end up saying, Nope, cyclists have just been stupid. You know, it was two times two all along, you know, it was doubles all along. It, I don't think that's what we'll find. We'll find that probably the judicious use of both is uh, a good way to go. Meaning some, you know, the cyclist is going to need some, need some long rides when they race long. And Chris has given me this look of the jury's still out on cyclists, but Trevor, you've definitely been stupid. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I, I, I'm going to be honest with you guys. And again, I'm the sports scientist. I make a living trying to pretend like I'm supposed to be really smart on this stuff, but um, good grief. Coaches and athletes have been experimenting on this for decades. 
So I don't think they're stupid. They, I don't think they've missed out and just thought, well, uh, we never thought of two times two. You know, we never thought of doing doubles. Of course I have. You know, so, you know, we just have to accept that one of the big issues is that cycling does have some long races and a lot of saddle time. And so part of that is you got to prepare for that. Uh, but I do think that in a modern, you know, with what we're seeing and with more cross communication between the different uh, sports and that, that we're seeing some fertilization, some new ideas, and we're seeing some of our, our best cyclists that are saying, Hey, you know what? I can do doubles. This is, this can be a good approach. And especially with the advent of these virtual methodologies where it makes it less boring you know, there's a lot of different things that are coming together, right? And so I think that's why we're starting to see more, uh, a little bit more flexibility up in the heads of, of uh, some of our, our cyclists. So that's a good thing, I, I, you know, but I, I don't think we're going to, in five years, come. I'll be able to come back to you and say, well, we have the answer. You know, it, it, it will, it's complex and the the degree of overlapping, the degree of individualization, the degree of interaction with nutrition and genetics and so forth is going to be so su- su- significant that it, I don't think we'll see, see a black and white deal. It'll be, uh, it'll be gray. The last thing we'll discuss is how well training in one endurance sports transfers to the others. But before we get into it with Dr. Seiler, let's hear Joe Gamble's take on the question. Swimmers or triathlete swimmers? Because triathlete swimmers will swim with a watch, which I, yeah, shake my head at. But swimmers will use a pace clock. And it's really interesting how swimmers train because they never, you'll never see a swimmer do what some, like a cyclist would do. Maybe they might do three by 20 minutes in a two hour ride. They'll break it into tiny bite sized pieces. They'll do 80 times 50 on a tight interval because I think it's engaging. You can't just go and swim or some people can, you can't go and swim three by 20 minutes and hold a pace, but they've figured out um, that if I, the body doesn't really realize that I've stopped for five seconds and they can actually, it's like, it's like Tabata's like you can sort of, they can swim at a higher rate with a five second, 10 second rest and still get the same amount of volume without going, okay, we're just going to do an hour as hard as we can because, and especially with swimming being such a technical sport, you need, you can't focus for an hour straight on really good technique. But if you break it into bite-sized pieces, 50s, 100s, you can actually really focus on technical, um, the real technical aspects of the swim, which is crucial. If you don't have a good technique in swimming, you're not going anywhere. So I think that's um, a really uh, great way that they've sort of managed to take still build a big aerobic capacity but break it down and i think like even someone i'm guessing you know who arthur lydiard is he actually used to do this with his runners he'd do fartleks where a lot of speed play um they'd still do a lot of volume but he would break it into these small pieces that were achievable and mentally they were and it really kept the athletes I think fresh and and sort of tricked them into still running 100 miles a week but in a in a different he attacked it from different angles which is really interesting let me hit you with a, a final question here Dr. Seiler 
and that is how do how do these uh, various sports transfer over in terms of training from one to the other? Big question. Yeah. Yeah, it's a tough one too, but it, there's been some research and there's we can make some decently educated guesses. Swimming probably doesn't transfer to much of anything else besides swimming. I'm going to be really rough on that one. In other words, probably the triathlete doesn't get faster in running from their swimming work. Um, but it does look like that the, the cycling modality and the running modality, there's some some degree of interplay, some some transfer, some crossover. So, and, and particularly, I would say for runners, I think that adding some cycling can be a good solution because it adds training volume. It adds peripheral muscle stimulation without adding that low eccentric muscular ballistic loading. And, and for a lot of runners that are injury prone, that are on the ragged edge there, that is a way for them to train more without getting more frequently injured. So I do see some, some benefits there for athletes that are not just kind of born to run with a body that doesn't get injured and they weigh these six kilos and all this stuff, you know? So, so, uh, and plus we got to face it, the, the Olympic distance triathletes, we're seeing that they, they are not running huge volumes, but they're running pretty darn fast 10 Ks um, suggesting that, they're not wasting their time, you know, that the, the cycling is not totally uh, independent and they're getting some transfer. You know, if I look, you got to be a, you know, if you want to win a, a Olympic triathlon, you got to be a 28, you know, mid 28 minute 10K runner. You're a solid 10K runner. Uh, and you're doing that on, I don't know, maybe 100 kilometers a week. You're not, you know, you're not doing a huge volume compared to a, a, a specialist. So it looks like they're getting some transfer. The other thing that's interesting, this uh, I read in a, a really good review from uh, Dr. Izzeran, is that uh, while we talk about the specificity of training, uh, the overtraining and potential for injury is also actually somewhat specific. So there is, so he talks about the fact that you can increase the load you can in, uh, of total training while reducing the risk of overtraining an injury by doing some cross-training, which I found really interesting. Oh, yeah, absolutely. That fits right in. You know, uh, runners, most of the injuries are below the knee. So, so that's where they're most vulnerable. If the, the good distance runners, they're getting various, various issues with, with their shins, with their plantar fascia, with their Achilles, with their knees and so forth. Uh, you know, there can be some stuff up in the hips, but, but, but predominantly they're below the knee injuries. If you take the rowers, they're, they're having trouble with their back, you know, their low back, and then they get broken ribs from, they get stress fractures in their ribs. The swimmers, they get shoulder problems. So most of the, the sports have a, a kind of an Achilles area um, to, to use a term. And, and then you're working around that. The, the rowers can use cycling. 
as an additional stimuli. The speed skaters use cycling a lot because the loading on the legs in, in speed skating, when they, every time they go around the curve, is just so high that they can't handle more than about three days in a row of tough speed skating. And then they, they unload on the, on the bike. So these are different ways to, to train the body without, without overloading those weak links or those pressure points, you might say, in that movement. I trained at the same center as the Canadian national rowing team. And this was the team that won the gold in the heavy eight. And I was surprised how frequently they came out and went on our, our base mile training rides on the bike. Yeah. Yeah. So again, yeah, that's one of the issues is, is the rowing that, you know, again, when you're down at that stroke rate, I was talking about 18, 20, you're pulling pretty damn hard. So there's a, you know, it's a, a pretty heavy muscular load and particularly on the musculature in the low back. And then, and then the ribs actually get tugged on every stroke and then you get stress fractures in the ribs uh, because these oar blades are so wide now. So they, 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 they hook into the water so firmly that the, the load the resistance is really high at the beginning of what we call the catch. So there's every sport has these, even within the, the the stroke or the stride or whatever these these vulnerabilities and and that's where maybe cross training can help uh, to to kind of keep things at bay while maintaining some cardiovascular load, some general muscular st- stimulation, and so forth. I would assume though, if uh, if your primary sport was um, running you would probably want to do your interval sessions on the track and maybe some of your slow days of running, you would uh, increasingly um, substitute in some cycling to to reduce stress, right? Yeah, so let's say we've got a female athlete. uh, We've got one in Norway. She's had some injury issues. She started, you know, they're doing two-a-days, two running sessions a day. She started switching out one of those running sessions with – different kinds of cross training with elliptical with with uh, you know the stair step with with cycling and so forth she was a skier before so she did some roller skiing so she you know reduced her total volume of running but maintained a total volume of training and then as you say her specific hard sessions were on were running that was just a subtle switch she made she she said look i i stay healthier if I bring down my total running kilometers per week, but I maintain my total volume by substituting in these other modalities and, and stay, she stays happy, stays healthy and, and runs better, you know, and I think cyclists can do that too. Cyclists can get into this where they have a lot of, you know, you're always in that crouch position. You're not, you need to extend, you need, you need to do some counter activities that kind of put you in a different body position that stretch you back out. I think, and, and also they need bone stimulation. So like the team I work with, the coach, he has his, his athletes at least run once a week, you know, and this is a professional cycling team, but he, but he wants them to get some, some stimulations for bone health. And, and it's just a, also just a mental break. It's just a, you know, a, a alternative modality they can put on their headphones and go run for 45 minutes and, and, and it's good for them. So we're going on a bit of a tangent here, but while we have you on the show, I actually really want to ask you this question because I think 
the the debate that I've seen most frequently on our forum and through our through emails is when somebody's doing your four by eight minute intervals, what's the intensity? And, and it, it, we get into the weeds. You know, is it one hundred and one percent, one hundred percent? You know, my opinion, which is that really doesn't matter because day to day fluctuation. But is it? Should you be targeting a number, or should you just be doing them as hard as you can do them? Yeah, if I were going to give someone advice on that, I'd say, all right, if you're going to do four by eight, let's let's go ahead and plan on doing it for four weeks. Let's go ahead and put in a block or or a, or a cycle, a four week cycle, where every week for four weeks we're going to do a, a four by eight session, just one. You know, and, and then what you do, you may have a second hard day that you do a race or you do a whatever. But but we're going to have one session and we're going to start that first week totally on feel. In week one, that's what I would do. I would have them do is I would say just, yeah, you're you're looking at your power, you're looking at your heart rate, but just accept, just try to find what feels uncomfortably comfortable or comfortably uncomfortable. You could decide which way you want it, but you get my point. You, it should feel like, all right, this is tough, but I'm in the zone. I can, I can hold. And, and each, each bout feels tougher, but you're trying for even pacing, but just go on feel. And then you get some numbers. You say, okay, I was, I held 350, 350 Watts. All right. So now you got a benchmark and now you can start saying, all right, what was, what was my heart rate? You know, and then you can go in week two, you're going to try to add five watts or, or maybe 10, but not more. Uh, or or you could say, I'm going to add an extra interval, an extra bout. So you could start at three times eight in week one and then go to four times eight in week two at the same power and go to five times eight in week three at the same power. And then week four is your unload or Maybe you do four times eight at a slight or three times eight at a slightly higher power. You with me? So I, what I would try to get viewers or listeners to think about is thinking of it as a staircase, a staircase uh, approach where you, a stair, a set of stairs has a a rise and run. You know what I mean? It it lifts up and then it goes forward. And so you want to use the run. You want to extend also when you're doing intervals. And so that's, that's a tool in your toolbox is, you know, plan a four week cycle, start with three times, eight minutes on feel. And then based on what you achieved in week one, so let's say it was 350 or 300 Watts or whatever. Now say, all right, I'm going to do one more of those. So now the workout's four times eight. And then if that goes and probably your heart rate drifted up even farther, you were even farther on the edge of what felt like you could do, but you did it. So now we're going to say week three, I'm going for for five of these bad boys, five times eight. So now I've extended, extended, extended. And then if I achieve that, now I'm up at 40 minutes of total work. Now I'm going to add 10 watts and go back down to three repeats for my next cycle, you know, or I'm going to try to peak at the end of that four weeks with a, a three times eight at a higher wattage than I've achieved before. I love the fact that you started by saying, go with the feel. You're going for a particular feel because I do think, particularly in this type of work, it's important that you have the sense for the feel and don't just say, here's my number. I'm going to lock in that number. And whether I'm 
dying or breathing through yeah. my nose. I don't care because oh, it's the right number. There's so much day-to-day variation and just in large parts of the season, I think feel is, is the appropriate tool. And then as you're, as you're gearing up for a race or you're trying to peak, then yeah, you can be a bit more external load focused and try to zero in on a specific pace. But I think that uh, interplay, a lot of top coaches I talk to and listen to and read about, they, they try to, carefully manage the use of feel versus hard numbers and they do both, but they do, they try to find the right balance because psychologically those hard number type workouts where you're just saying, well, if I don't hold 350 for all four of these, then it's a failure, man, that is just psychologically damaging. And it's not really consistent with the realities of day-to-day variation. Dr. Siler, you know how this goes, uh, very long discussion today, a lot that we've unpacked and a lot more we could have unpacked. What would you say is uh, or are the greatest, most uh, important take-homes somebody should take from this discussion today? We'll start with you. Well, all heart rate is not the same. So that's the first thing is if you're switching, if you're going from cycling to running, then heart rate's going to feel too high. If you're going from running to cycling, then Heart rate's going to feel too low given the amount of pain you're feeling, but it's okay. Don't get, don't get frustrated. It'll get better. That's just because you, it's a, it's specific. So heart rate's not the same. That would be take home message number one and maybe the most practical element of it. And then I guess down at that muscular level, be aware of these different, the way that the rhythms of the musculature and, and then how you can use, if you're a, a push and glide athlete, then you're going to use that for gearing. If you're one of the, if you're a runner or a cyclist, then you're going to be, you're not going to have that same uh, push and glide feeling and you're not going to use uh, cadence in the same way. It's going to be more uh, force that you're modulating. And you just have to be aware of that difference if you if you start moving across these sports. And then maybe the third take home would be don't be afraid to try if you're having some injury issues or some staleness issues. Don't be afraid to try switching out some workouts and, and going and using an alternative modality, uh, because a lot of times that can turn out to be a good thing and it can freshen up your mentality and also freshen up your legs or your body. So uh, I do think we, we get scared to do something different from our specific sport. Uh, but I think a little bit of variation and cross training is probably pretty healthy and, and almost uh, rejuvenating for a lot of athletes. My take home is going to uh, uh, dovetail with what you've just said, because I've started to do a little bit more running. Um, it used to be my primary sport long ago, and then I became a cyclist, but now I'm getting back into running more. And it, uh, it certainly is, um, I think more important for me mentally than anything physically. I, I hope that it is actually transferring over. I think the, the, like the bone density issue is, is important as well. So that's good, but more important to me, I think is the, 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 fresh 
uh, approach that it offers and that break from the the cycling. So I would encourage people. I know it's funny. We we talked about how evolutionarily humans are basically meant to be upright and running the most. And then we talk about how many injuries there are in runners. We talk about how hard it is on the muscles, how much recovery you need. <laughs> and I think, a lot, you know, we speak to a lot of cyclists on this show, and I think a lot of cyclists really don't like running. Um, but if you get into the habit of doing it and you get past that nasty phase at the start and you just maintain a little bit, I think it actually is a really pleasurable thing to do and it, and, and has its benefits. So that's what I would leave. And, and if I can jump in here on sure. your, on that is we weren't evolutionarily designed to run on asphalt and cement. Well, there you go. Correct. Uh, so, so that is a key caveat. So to the cyclists, one of the best things to help them in that transition is stay off the asphalt, find dirt trails, find soft ground, find golf courses, find grass, and that will help. Yeah. And then uh, that's the type of running I do. It's never on roads. It's always on trails and things. So, yep. Trevor. Yep. I'm going to have to think about this because I really haven't gotten past my big take home, which is how to a good way to finally pronounce symorphosis. <laughs> hey, that's something. <laughs> that, that just made my day because that has been a beast on my back for a long time. So I'll just make mine really simple, which is you know, we definitely want to talk about these other sports and – yeah, you know, we always talk about specificity. So you can start to think that, oh, you know, the training is very different between all these endurance sports. But I think when you get into the details, yes, when you're talking about the principles, when you're talking about the broad strokes, it's actually quite remarkable how much all of these sports have really landed on the same overall approach, the same way to train to, to get to your, your best endurance performance. Dr. Seiler, always a pleasure. Thank you again for joining us. Yeah, I hope this was, I, I enjoyed it, and I hope the readers or the viewers enjoy it because I think it was a new, a different topic, and that's. I think that's good. Uh, and I do think that, that just bringing down the barrier for, for a bit of cross-training, cross-fertilization, whatever you want to call it, I think that's a good thing. That was another episode of Fast Talk. Subscribe to Fast Talk wherever you prefer to find your favorite podcasts. Be sure to leave us a rating and a review. The thoughts and opinions expressed on Fast Talk are those of the individual. As always, we love your feedback. Join the conversation at forums.fasttalklabs.com to discuss each and every episode and become a member of Fast Talk Laboratories at fasttalklabs.com join to become a part of our education and coaching community. For Dr. Steven Seiler, Adam St. Pierre, Joe Gambles, Glenn Swan, and Trevor Connor. I'm Chris Case. Thanks for listening. <laughs>